Okay, here we go. Uh, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I simply want to ask that you would make this message live in people's hearts. um, That it would produce the things that you want it to produce, please. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm is really, uh, I guess it's, you could describe it as, um, in part, a warning against living a, a vain life. Um, there's these three sentences. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And so really, what, what the psalmist is doing here, this, um, Solomon actually in this one, is that um, he's saying, just be careful, there's, some, there's a certain kind of living that you don't want to get into because it's vain. Now just to help you understand biblically what the word vain means, there's a number of different words used, but this is one of the um, common words in the Hebrew, and it really means, if I clear a bit of a space here, the idea is, is that the word means um, something that has been rushed over almost um, and desolated as, as by a, some sort of tempest or storm rushing over it. So it's the desolation due to a tempest or a storm or something like that. Now, just to help you understand, okay, how does, how does, that, how does that work? Here's how it works. Um, so naturally, we tend to think of vain things as something that just didn't work, yeah? They tried it, but it was in vain. So they tried to climb Mount Everest, but it was in vain. They didn't manage to accomplish it. That's how we tend to use it. Uh, we tend to think very pragmatically. If something was obviously a success, it wasn't in vain. If something obviously flopped, it was in vain. And that's really how we assess what is in vain and what isn't. Someone sets out to run a marathon, if they finish it, it wasn't in vain. If they don't finish it, it was. We tend to really be very superficial in that sense. Whereas the Bible looks at things very, very differently. Heaven's perspective is very different. So what's the idea with this tempest rushing through and desolating? The idea is this. Throughout Scripture, the Day of Judgment is referred to in a number of different ways. One of them is uh, the image of a fire, the other the image of a storm. And so the tempest is the tempest of judgment. And the idea of a vanity or a vain life is that actually what you've been laboring towards, the thing you've been building and putting your thought and energy and concentration into, when it comes under the scrutiny of the day of judgment, actually the tempest of God's judgment goes through and what you've been about is desolated by it instead of remaining through it. And so that is how the Bible differentiates what is in vain and what is genuinely worth doing. Okay? It's not just how it appears on the surface. So, for example, imagine there was someone who was a believer and um, they lived, someone in their family was severely disabled. 
and, and because of the work of God in their heart and out, they're just wanting to really exemplify the love of Christ and for the glory of God, they determined to give their life to looking after this disabled member of their family. And no one ever knows about it. And really, it's not impressive in a, in a kind of a uh, wow sense. You know, no one knows about it. They just get on quietly, and um, they may have to sacrifice certain things, certain things dear to their own heart, to be able to do that. But within them, there's the Holy Spirit's urging that actually this is, part, this is the calling of God on their life to do this. And so they quietly, humbly, and graciously care for this person for decades. The world's assessment of that you know, would, may not even, they may not even have one because they wouldn't even know about it. They've not made a big, they've not made a big imprint. You know, there's not, been, not, there's not a huge legacy you could point to. But when the tempest of judgment goes through and goes over this, what's left is this incredible gold. It's not desolated at all. It's like, wow, that's incredible. And then let's imagine we have someone else who wants to make a name for themselves and wants people to know, you know, really about them, and wants to leave a legacy that people might remember them, and wants to put their footprint and their fingerprint really on the world, and they want books to be written about them, etc., etc., and they, they do these incredible things, and they go about these works that everyone's very aware of, and everyone writes about, and everyone sings their praises, and yet actually because at its heart, it's about the person wanting to make a name for themselves. When the tempest of judgment goes through, it's utterly desolated. It was in vain. This is what this psalm is about. It's saying, don't live a vain life. Don't live the kind of life where the tempest goes through and it's just desolated. Now, it's not just a do-better psalm. None of the scripture at its heart is a do-better psalm. It's it's wanting to take you somewhere supernatural. It's wanting to take you somewhere to live a kind of life you could never live naturally. Something which is way beyond anything you could possibly just drum up through your own best effort, so please don't fall into that trap either. Let's look at this. It says here, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Now it's interesting Solomon wrote this because, um, I don't know whether you know your Bible history or not, but Solomon was famous for building a house. Um, see, his father David wanted to build a house for God. His father David lived in a lovely palace and was aware that God's presence, which kind of, in those days it was kind of... Um, uh, God's presence is everywhere, but it's in a concentrated, kind of a symbolic, but a more, more than that, in a concentrated way, it kind of indwelt this object called the Ark of the Covenant. And, um, and, it, and it lived in a tent, which they called the tabernacle. And Dave, King David is thinking, look at me in this palace and look at the presence of God in this tent. I'm going to build a house for God. And um, a man called Nathan, who was a prophet, said to David, do, do all that's in your heart, God is with you. Nathan then goes home and then God speaks to Nathan and says, actually you've got it wrong, David's a man of war, he's got too much blood on his hands, I don't want him building a mere house. Um, tell David I'm going to build him a house. Really talking about a dynasty. Um, and, and that actually one of his descendants will build me a house. Solomon, David's son, then builds the incredible, uh, beautiful temple uh, in Jerusalem. A very impressive place where kings would come from nations, other nations to see it. Um, and so we see here that when Solomon's writing this, it's got a very poignant kind of thing to it. Solomon's, not, Solomon's thinking of the house of God. He's thinking of the place where God's presence dwells. And throughout the Bible, there's this theme of God's presence. You see it first when Eden, Adam and Eve, they knew his presence. Then they were banished from the garden because of their sin and no longer knew the presence of God. And then you see various 
people that God gets a hold of and they know something of his presence. And then we get to the point where they get the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle for a season. Then Solomon builds the house, the, the, the temple, and then that gets destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 BC. Then that's rebuilt, not so impressively, but it's rebuilt. And then uh, later on, centuries later, Herod does something impressive with the temple. AD 70, the Romans destroy it. And then you have to ask yourself, well, where's the presence of God after that? Where's the house of God after that? Well, the Bible is really, really clear that the church is the house of God. And when we say the church, we don't mean this building that we're in. It's the people. You see, it's always been God's plan to dwell in people. Not a box or a tent or a building, but in hearts. That is the plan of God. And so that's why we need to understand clearly what this means. God is building a house, but it's not what you and I naturally think. It's not some amazing cathedral somewhere. It's people. In fact, the Bible describes Christians as living stones that are built together to form a temple for his presence. That's the plan of God. That's the house that God is building. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church. He wasn't saying, I've got a great plan for an amazing cathedral in Syria. He wasn't saying that. When he said, I'm going to build my church, he's, what he's got in mind is a community of people indwelt by his spirit. A community of people that have been born again. Okay? That have been made alive by Jesus and made entirely different, brand new creatures, the Bible describes it, to be indwelt by his presence and then built together into communities around the world, which overall represent one huge community of his presence. That's what God is building. Maybe we can read it with different eyes now. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There's really one house that God's building. God has decided that the way primarily he will extend his kingdom in the earth, the way that primarily he will make himself known and bring life change is through the church. That's the plan of God. It's God's plan A, there's no plan B. And you might be sitting there thinking, but the church has really messed it up down the ages. Yeah, don't I know it? I know. It really has. But somehow God hasn't given up on it. In fact, the, the church is so close to God's heart. You know, there was a man called Saul who used to persecute the church. And uh, Jesus appeared to him, the glorified Jesus, who back in heaven appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Incredible. Jesus' church is being persecuted. And, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You can imagine Saul saying, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting them. Jesus says it's the same thing. It's my body. Church is the, not only the house of God, it's the body of Christ. The church is that dear. In fact, it's so dear that the church is described as the bride of Christ. That's the house God is building. What I'm trying to get at today is this, is that if you are not about building the church, then your life is in vain. I'm not saying you must all be employed by the church and be ministers, you know, preachers, and I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if you do not carry in your heart and practically live out a sense of co-laboring with Jesus as he builds his church, then when the tempest of judgment comes through, you'll be desolated. Because that's what God's doing. That's the house he's building. And unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain to build it. Now you can build the church in different ways. Absolutely. It's not just about going to meetings although it's good to gather. But we gather to scatter, don't we? 
We gather to be filled with the Spirit and then scatter and go and shine our light. That's building the church. It's all part of it. Okay? Building the church is about going to reach the homeless every week, as the team does down at Euston. That's part of building the church. Building the church is earning a lot of money and investing it into the things of the kingdom so that the gospel can go forward and we can send people to Latvia, to Poland, to other places that we can't mention because they're too dangerous, and we can support them. That's building the church. Building the church is turning up early and setting out the chairs. Building the church is making the phone call to you, one of your brothers or sisters that you haven't seen for a while. Yeah, okay, I'm concerned about you. Can I pray for you? That's building the church. But it's not to be a side thing. I want to urge this because, you know what, I'll be honest with you. When you're a church of 12 people, everyone's on board. And everyone's about the same thing. And you're all, you're all like, we've all moved up here to plant a church. We're about the church. Jesus is about the church. We're with you, Lord. As it gets bigger, it's a lot easier to, for it to become something where people just come along to. If you ever find yourself saying, I go to that church, beware. Beware that language. The language should be, I'm a part of that church. I'm a part of that. You're the church. You are the church. If you're a believer, you are the church. You can't say you don't like, I don't like the church. Well, you are the church. <laughs> See, if you, you've got to watch this stuff because you, you find you get some people that are Christians, but they're mavericks. They float from here to there. I'll go there that way because that preaches how I like him. Then I'll go there and it's just immature and it's selfish. And you're not actually committing yourself to a body of people to pour out your life with. That's what God calls you to. That is what God calls you to. Yes, the church with all its flaws... That's what God calls you to with all your flaws. With all its foibles, yes, with all your foibles. With all its imperfections, yes, with all your imperfections, yes. That's how it goes, brothers and sisters. That's how it works. That is what God is about. And, uh, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how many people I speak to that have been genuinely abused by the church, spiritually abused, controlled, manipulated. I mean, it's just horrifying. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't surprise me that some people think, man, you know, they, there's, a, there's a sense of, of, of holding back. And I want to say, if that's you, we'll do the journey with you, you know. We'll do the journey with you and we'll, we'll, we'll see you come through and get healed. We won't be just, we don't just want stuff from you. But we want you to see the church. We want you to understand. You've got to love the church if you want to love Jesus because Jesus loves the church. You've got to love the church if you want to be like Jesus because he loves the church. Over 2,000 years of nonsense, he hasn't given up on the church, hallelujah. We've got no right to. We've got no right to. We want to build something that looks like Jesus, though, don't we? That's going to take pouring ourselves out for one another. And I want to urge you, let's just keep, let's keep doing it. Those of you that you just feel like you're kind of half in, half out, come on. We're about a mighty work. We're about a mighty work. God's about a mighty work. I don't want to be involved in something vain. Vain glory. Some of it, I think, oh, it's all, no, I want to be something bigger than just me or my little thing. I want to serve what God is doing. Hallelujah. And then it goes on to say that um, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The Lord is watching over his church. The, church, the city of God is the church. Jesus said, you know, you're like a city on a hill, didn't he, Matthew 5? You're like a city on a hill. That's what he said. And, uh, you know, this is... This is this is the church again, and God is watching over it. And, uh, you know, to try and watch over things that, I'll, I'll look at this later, but just to, when, you, when you spend your life looking over, watching, guarding things that God's not fussed about, you can do as much watching and guarding as you like. It's vain. 
even if he managed to hold on to it in this life, when the storms of judgment blow through, it's gone. It's gone. It's wasted. Instead, it's much better to exercise watchfulness and responsibility over something that God is watching over. Because then, there's fruit, then it bears fruit. God's with you. You are laboring with God. And then we get to this thing here. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Or it might, the Hebrew there is uncertain. It might say he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. It's a beautiful way of thinking. It's a way of looking at it. And again, I want to say this. We're going to go through this psalm twice tonight. I'm going to go through it first to the church, and then I'm going to localize it into your life. Okay? It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. As you get on board with God and Jesus in terms of them building their church, and you say, I want to just work with you, there ought to be an ease about it. I'm not saying it's always easy, but it ought not be an anxious thing. It ought not be this thing that eats you up. And Is it going to go all right? Is that going to work? He's doing it. Yeah? We give ourselves to it. We give the best of what we've got to it. But it's his thing. This is so releasing, brothers. It is his thing. It's his church, and he will build it. Okay? And it will be a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the whole idea, you just, I'll oh, catch the vision for just a moment of a church that really does bring the kingdom to its locality. I mean, the carol service Thursday night, we had an amazing time. Those of you who weren't there, it was just glorious. We had a whole, whole row of uh, homeless guys from, from, from Houston. And uh, just to see, you know, heard about one of them just really weeping before, before she came in, just really hopeless, so lifted by just being around the church and, and the preaching of the gospel, and so encouraged. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful time. And you know, it's just a snippet. There's a lot, there's so much more to be done. So much more. But it's just a snippet. You start to see, praise God, we're starting to have inroads into that subculture, into those, into those communities. When Cap now, helping out those in debt, you're starting to see, I see one woman's life real, really changed now. Things opening up for Cap. You think we're starting to, praise God, this could really happen. <laughs> this could really, really happen. To be good news to this city. The really good news that there might be joy in the city. Isn't that what our city needs? Joy. They don't need to be hanging off of statues and kicking in windows. They can know the joy of God. Okay? They can know that the delivers them from futile anxieties and fears. Okay? And I'm not making a political comment here. I'm not, this has nothing to do with politics. I'm saying it is not the will of God for anyone to be doing that. It's the will of God that people know their God who is sovereign and who will provide for them. Amen. And live in the peace and the good of that. And that's what, that, that, comes, that comes as the church lives out the life of Christ and preaches Christ. Wow. Wow. And then this second half. This is really a, did you notice this is a really a psalm of two halves? Suddenly he's talking about having kids. Right? So let's, let's stay with the church figurative theme for the moment. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. When we say things like, tell your friends about Jesus, or tell your, tell your family about Jesus, or share Christ, what we're really saying, we're saying this, God wants a really big family. He wants loads of kids. God wants loads of kids. He, that, when you become a Christian, the Bible says you go from being alienated to being adopted. 
All right? You go from being totally outside of the party, the feast, the celebration, to being brought right in, and God puts his spirit of sonship in you. He welcomes you as his own. It's a beautiful moment. And that spirit of sonship will live with you forever. When the spirit of sonship lives inside of you, it's a seal from God that you are his, that you've been welcomed into his family, accepted as one of his children. God wants a big family. God wants to have a massive family to spend eternity with. It's the heart of God. He's the ultimate father. He wants as many kids as he can get. That is that. And, and if you're here today and you might say, you don't know if you do believe in the Lord, the Lord Jesus and you're thinking, you know, you're thinking about me. Do I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus? Do I, want, do I want you to become a Christian? You bet I do. Why? It's the heart of God in me. He wants a big family. And, it's, and, and co-laboring with God like that, it's more than just kind of like, a, oh, I'll tell someone about Jesus. It's like you feel it in your own spirit. You feel the heart of God. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says to the Galatians, I'm in labor pains until Christ is fully formed in you. It's like he's part of the birthing process. He's free. He's like, oh, man, what is that? When the spirit of God lives in you, the heart of God comes in you. And the heart of God is for a huge family. And the heart of God is to gather the waifs and the strays and the outcasts and the alienated and bring them back into the fold and bring them back into the celebration and bring them back into the party. That is God's heart. God's heart is to forgive you and draw you to himself and make you his own. Absolutely. And if you're a believer, that's God's heart for your friends, for your colleagues, for your associates. It really is. This isn't about just trying to get someone to believe what you believe. It's about God reconciling all things to himself and having a huge family. That's why we share Christ. It's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. Okay? So give yourself to the church because it's what God's doing. It's what God is doing. It will look different for different people. For someone like me, it, it's my vocation. It's what I do for a living. Okay? That, that's just the God's particular calling on my life. For others, it's, there's, just, there's a business calling and it's a resources. Resource the church. There's a finance, there's a call to give very generously. For others, there's a call to serve in projects and particular ministries. For others, it's practical things. Others, administrative stuff. Others, pastoral care. It's different. God brings different gifts to the church, right? It's the beauty of it, okay? But our heart is all together. We're about the same thing. We're about what God is about. Now I'm going to localize it in. And that's some fun now. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Because you see, in the Bible, our life is also compared to building a house. And I want to ask you what you're building. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, if you hear the words I say and put them into practice, you're not the person who built their house on the rock. The storm came and it stood firm. If you, listen, if you hear what I say but don't apply it, then you're like someone who built their house on the sand. The storm came and great was its fall. I don't want that for you. I want you to be in category A, okay? I want you to apply what Jesus says. And how do you apply what Jesus says? I'll tell you how you apply what Jesus says. You go to the start of that sermon. It starts with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got to start there. Some people start in the middle. I say things, I was talking to someone the other day. Oh, yeah, I love the Sermon on the Mount and that sort of thing. I'm thinking, you can't love the Sermon on the Mount. You can't. How can you love, turn the other cheek? Have you ever tried doing it? You only say you love it if no one's ever slapped you. Then you don't love it when they slap you. You hate it. Because I want to slap them back and I can't. Am I right? (laughs) Or if your eye causes you to lust, scoop it out. 
You'd love that? Most of you'd be blind, wouldn't you? Let's face it. By now, if that... People just drop into the middle of the sermon sermon and say, this is great. And I think, you don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, it doesn't start there. It starts here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are those who realize, I can't do this. I've got nothing. There is nothing within me that can commend myself to God. I'm utterly poverty stricken. When you get to that point, what does Jesus say? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Over their sin. It's like, do you know what? When people slap me, I want to slap them ten times. I enjoy lusting. Oh gosh. You see yourself for what you are. And you mourn your sin. Jesus says, you're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Those who realise, you know what, I thought I was the man. I've seen myself now. I've seen God's requirements and my eyes. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. It's the gospel. You see, the gospel teaches that you haven't got it and you can't do it and God has done it for you. God has sent his son to be all that you are not and to do all that you cannot perfectly. Okay? And it's it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, it's so, oh man, you, oh, we need to learn how to celebrate more, don't we? Yeah. You just, I love, you know, I don't know what that little refrain is. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm seeing that thinking, yes! <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm a walking miracle. I am a, I am a res, I've been resurrected. I, I'm a, I was dead in my sin. But now it's like, I, I'm alive to God. It's the gospel. It's a miracle. He's, he's woken, not just woken me up, he's called me out of the tomb and he's forgiven my sins and he's made me brand new through the wonderful, amazing, incredible, terrible life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What? It's the gospel. And I want to build on that because that's the rock. And if you're not building on that, I want to say this to you graciously, it is vain. The tempest of judgment will come through and will desolate everything you've built. It will, there is a day coming where everything will be tested by fire. And when that fire comes through, if it is not built on Jesus, it is, there, there will be nothing left to show for what you have done. No matter how impressed people were with you. And you'll realise it's just futility. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. When I was preparing this, I just had this strong image in my mind of just like a furrowed brow, you know, of someone really trying to just keep on top of everything, make sure they don't lose that, and that's okay. And you know what? Unless the Lord watches over those things, it's in vain. It's in vain. There's so many people that you meet with, believers, pastorally, there's so much anxiety. And there's so much worry and fear about what might happen and this and that. And very often, sadly, so little peace. And you just think, is it just, what, what, what is the root of this? And not always, but sometimes the root of it is, is that people are just, into, just trying to control everything. They're just trying to determine their own 
deal their own sort of destiny and it just leaves such anxiety. Listen, I, I want to say this to you. If you are looking over to try and protect things that God is not fussed about, it's futility. It's just futility. And then we get the, this is the killer phrase. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Here it is, eating the bread of anxious toil. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Sometimes work means you do have to get up early. Sometimes it means you do have to work a bit late. I understand that. But if the rhythm of your life is that you eat the bread of anxious toil, that there is no rest, actually. That you always... Something's wrong. I just want to say that something is wrong and you need to look at your life. It's vain. It's often just a symptom of unbelief. You don't trust God. You want to get ahead. And we live in a city, right? And the city is full of aspirational people. Cities draw aspirational people like magnets. People who want to make something alive. It's like we're all like a, like a room full of Dick Whittingtons, right? We've all come to find the golden pavement, yeah? That's, what this, that's the city. It's what it does, okay? Now, aspiration is okay. But if it's not rooted in a firm faith in the perfect timing of God and the goodness of God and that he's got a plan for your life, it will, it will go haywire. And your life will be marked by anxiety, stress, uh, lack of rhythm, and it'll, it'll kill you. It'll, now, I understand it if you're not a believer, because you don't know the Lord. And you think you've got to kind of make it, figure it out. But if you're a believer, for goodness sake, you know God. And what is the rule of accomplishment? What is the principle of accomplishment in the Bible? It is this. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Do you hear that? At the proper time, he will bring you through to where you need to be. And some people push so hard, so hard, so hard to get to where they want to be, they get there prematurely and it's ruined for them. Because they've just pushed into it and pushed into it and God's like, fine, you're not going to stop, you're not going to trust me, away you go. And you're not ready for it, it kills you. This is serious stuff, guys. This is really, this is the truth, this is the word of God. I'm just coming straight out of the text here. Coming straight out of the text. I'm not adding anything to it. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. It's lovely, isn't it? Gives to his... so, so when you go to bed tonight, you say, Lord, there's a few things I'm really needing. It'd be great if you could sort of sort them by the morning. <laughs> Why not? That's what he says. You're his beloved, aren't you? Yeah. You're bride. If he's church, you're his bride. Yeah? You ain't got to stress out. Sleep, this is why sleep is an important part of worship. If you say, and some of you know this too well, right? But, you know, some of you, some of you it's, it's like saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. And uh, now here's an interesting one. God's solution for a life full of selfish ambition and stressful unbelief seems to be this. Have loads of kids. It's there. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Most likely a lot of women get pregnant in their sleep, actually, in terms of the conception. I was looking on the internet. How long does it take for the sperm? I thought, I wondered if that could apply. I said, how? So I asked the question, ask whoever, you know, ask, ask someone clever. How long does it take for the uh, sperm to travel? And it would probably suggest that if most... If most Babies made during, during uh, you know, during making love, obviously, yeah. Okay, during that, <laughs> birds and bees. If, during, if, that's, if most lovemaking happens 
uh, before sleep time, which you probably reckon probably the majority of it does, then most babies, most, most sperms meet eggs during sleep time. So we go from this sentence, listen, listen, no, no, listen, we go from this sentence, he gives to his beloved even in their sleep, to children are a heritage from the Lord. It's there. It's beautiful, isn't it? Here's the, here's the deal, right? Now, first of all, let me just say this, just to provide, as always, we've spoken on singleness in the church, the gift of singleness in the church, a very exalted and a wonderful gift. We've spoken about that. There's a whole sermon on it. So, you know, if you're, if you're single and you think, well, how do I do that? Get a load of spiritual kids, right? Get a load, get a load of spiritual wombats that are, like, really immature and that cause you a load of trouble and disciple them. That's basically what happens with natural kids, right? They just, they mess everything up. Okay, so find some people that you can disciple um, that really don't know their left hand from their right hand spiritually and put, put, pour your life into them and it will really deal with your selfish ambition because you'll be like, oh, man, these people are doing my head in. That's, part, that's God's plan. I want to say that it is God's plan. We live in a godless and a selfish culture. No surprise, it's an easy abortion culture. Kids are seen as a nuisance. Why? Because they don't get it. Because they slow things up. Because they mess things up. Because they wee in the bed. They poo on the carpet. They do. They do. They puke in the car. Yeah? They eat loads of food and don't pay for any of it. They keep on growing. They need a new wardrobe every year. All right? Kids, kids... Uh, uh, kids just mess everything up. Your schedule, every, they wake up in the night for no reason. You go in and it's like, there's no reason for this. And you have to fumble back to your bed. They, they, you have to tell them something 400 times, they still don't get it. They slow you up. And the whole time God is saying, they're a blessing, aren't they? They're a, it's just what you need. Because you're so self-important. And you're so selfish. This is exactly what you need. Have as many as you can. Very practical, isn't it? Because I tell you, if you get some kids, spiritual kids, or natural kids, and you pour yourself into them, and you pour Christ, and what Christ has put in you, into them, then when the tempest of judgment comes through, you know what's going to be left in you? Gold. Pure gold. And you're like, wow. And in the process, God's dealt with you. He's dealt with you. He slowed you down. He stopped you thinking that you're the middle of everything and the center of all things. He stopped. He's just, he's just sanctified your ambition. And, uh, and you learn to trust him better. It's such a practical psalm, isn't it? I just think it's like, I, I struggled preparing this psalm. I've got, unless the Lord builds a house, you're like, I'm there. And suddenly have loads of kids. I'm like, I don't understand. Why? Why is this thing in the same, in the same psalm? And as I just thought and reflected on my own life, I think, yeah, I think I, I, think I get it. You know, and he, say, he, says, he says it, doesn't he? He says, look, he says, when they get older, they'll protect you. You know, there'll be a blessing there. When you have to speak with your enemies in the gate and you've got all these hulking lads behind you, that are sort of, you know, you're 60 and they're 30. You can, talk to, you can talk with your enemies confidently because you know your boys are behind you. That you've poured your life into and built a good relationship with and they'll do all they can to protect you. Suddenly you realise, hey, there's a rhythm to this. This thing works well. 
See, it's the wisdom of God. And I, 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 want, I do want to say this. I think we need to build strong families in this church. Strong marriages, strong families. There needs to be strong relationships as well. Just spiritual father-son, mother-daughter relationships. All of that stuff, brother-sister relationships, we've got to build strong. It's not enough to just have a good celebration. When we're about something much more than that. God is building a family, amen? amen. God is building a family. And the plan is this. The plan is, is that this family will be filled with all kinds of diversity. I want to say this. We're looking for a church that incorporates black and white, Asian, Oriental, Latino, the, all, the, all the different ethnic groups all together. Old and young, rich and poor. We want the lot. Because it speaks of the gospel. You see, the primary problem isn't racism, ageism, sexism, classism. It's people. It's people. You find two people with the most in common you can before long, they'll find something to argue about. It's sin. If you think that things are a black, black, it's it's all the the black-white thing. Historically, there's been some terrible stuff that's gone on, but it runs a lot deeper than what's happened historically. You put a lot of white people in the room, they'll spot the ginger one. <laughs> well, no. oh, there's a ginger one over there. He's, well, we'll kick him out. Well, there's a fat one there. And on it goes. Am I right? Yeah. On it goes. He's different. She's different. In certain parts of Africa, tribalism is a huge problem. It's nothing to do with colour. The same colour, but it's this tribalism deal going on. It's, it's, it's people. People are sinful. People are simple. People want to put themselves first. People want to feel better about themselves, so they put others down. The Bible teaches that the cross deals with all of that. That on the cross, Jesus drew together the Jew and the Gentile, which is the biggest divide you could imagine. They wouldn't even eat in the same room. The Gentiles hated the Jews. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. The Bible says that in his body, he drew those two and he made them into one new man in him. So if the Jew-Gentile thing can be dealt with, every other barrier and wall gets dealt with. You see, the gospel breaks down those dividing walls because it kills sin. And it makes us realise that we're all the same as everyone else. Sinful, alienated from God, and in need of reconciliation. That's what the gospel helps you. You, can't, you can no longer point to the person who's a bit different from you and point to that thing, because you realise at, at, at our heart we're the same. We're just the same. And we've both been brought together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. So God's building his church. Let's build it with him. Let's do all we can to kill selfish ambition. And a big part of that is building strong families. In terms of biological families and spiritual families. And giving ourselves to one another. And slowing down that we might nurture one another. All of that speaks of the patience of God. And speaks of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you, Jesus, that you will build your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hallelujah. We thank you we can be a part of that. We thank you for what you're doing here. We thank you for what you're doing in other churches around the city, the nation and the nations. We thank you you are doing something amazing, Lord. We just thought, Lord, help us to jump in on what you're doing. Catch the heart of what you're doing. Be conformed to what you're doing. Keep us from just trying to do our own thing, and uh, which ends up just being vain, Lord. Keep us from that. I pray for fruitful lives. I pray particularly for those who have been hurt in church particularly for those who have been um, hurt in some way, and there's just, it's just really got, got like an arrow into their spirit. Yes. I want to ask you that healing would come, Lord. Amen. I want to pray that healing would come. 
those who have been hurt by people in the positions of authority in the church. I want to pray that healing would come there, Lord God. That they would be able to trust again. That they would be able to trust again, Lord God. And uh, would be able to um, be restored. That those years that seem to have been uh, really um, stolen would be restored by your grace, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to gather back and we're going to celebrate the gospel again. We're going to take the bread and we're going to take the wine. If you, um, as we take the bread and wine, if you don't drink alcohol, conscience issue or a health thing or whatever, then please drink the uh, cup without the orange sticker. That's juice, okay? The one with the orange sticker on it is real wine. Um, uh, so whether you do the juice or the wine, do it in a worthy manner, okay? So just do it seriously. It's remember Jesus' body broken for us. His blood shed for us. If you are, if there, if there are dividing walls between you and a brother and sister, go and get them right. Knock those walls down, okay? Let's live out the gospel as we celebrate the gospel. Yeah. Amen.